So good afternoon. I'd like to begin with a simple question, which is why do we call Megillat Esther, Megillat Esther, and not Megillat Mordechai? Or at least, equal opportunity, we'll call it Megillat Esther or Mordechai, or Mordechai ve Esther. And of course, uh, Mordechai is a central figure in the Megillah, and there seems to be no reason to shortchange him and to attribute the Megillah to Esther and not to Mordechai. Now, to answer this question, all you really need is not uh, 80 or 70 minutes, but really a minute and a half, because the answer is in the Megillah itself, and that is in Perik Tet, at the tail end of the Megillah. It's Perik Tet, Basuk Haftet. Vatichtov Esther Malka Batavichayil Umudichay Yudiat Kol Tokef. Esther and Mordechai wrote with all their authority. To establish the second Igeret, meaning Purim and Siyamto for generations. And then, I'm skipping here a bit. Esther's Ma'amar, in other words, Esther's decree or her Sefer, uh, or her Megillah, so to speak, has been established. And it stands forever. So Esther's authority is the one which establishes Megat Esther. It is Ma'amar Esther and not Ma'amar Mordechai. It is Esther's Megillah. And of course, later on in the Gemara and Megillah, the one describes the whole debate about whether to include Megillah's Esther within the Tanakh or not. So the Gemara says over there, Shalcha Esther Lachachamim. Esther sent to the Chacham of the generation, Kitvuni Lederot, register me in the Tanakh, incorporate me within Kitvi Kodesh, and uh, it's Esther, and not Mordechai, who has the whole debate, presumably because it's her book, it's her Megillah, and she's the one who wants to be included, and not uh, Mordechai. So that, in a sentence, is the answer. The answer is, the Megillah itself <coughs> basically gives the credit to Esther, not to Mordechai. And that, of course, doesn't really answer much. All it does, it really takes the question and uh, pushes it back one level, and not from Chazal, but from our, but to, to the Tanakh. Why does the Tanakh consider it Esther's uh, Megillah? Why doesn't the Tanakh say Umamar Mordechai Kiyam? Umamar Mordechai Vester Kiyam? Why does Tanakh consider it to be Esther's book or Esther's Ma'amar and not Mordechai's? To answer this already, we need more than a minute, uh, and that's why I'm standing here now for the next hour or so to try to, um, <coughs> to provide an explanation. To begin with this, though, uh, to answer why indeed Esther is the, not only the heroine, but if you want the pivotal figure in the Megillah, we have to go back another step and pose the second question, which is not only, not only why is the Megillah called Megillah's Esther and not Megillah's Mordechai, but what makes Purim into a special Yom Tov? So why is Purim, why do we celebrate Purim? Why do we treat Purim as a day of festivity and celebration and uh, as opposed to say other, other such uh, occasions? Put differently, I'm assuming that Purim was not the only time the Jews were rescued throughout history. That there were various occasions and points in which Jewish survival was threatened in which various enemies tend to persecute the Jews and Kaddish Baruch Hu delivered us from them. And therefore, the question is, what makes Purim unique and Dabrat Hanukkah as opposed to some of these other days of delivery, if you want? To, uh, now, there's an assumption here, and uh, I'm assuming uh, that's the case, and in a moment I'll try to establish this through the prism of Chazal, but if a person will assume that the only two times in history in which Jewish survival was threatened and they were rescued and there were no other such occasions, so then the answer is we celebrate because at these two pivotal points, Jewish survival was at stake and the Kosh rescued us. If though we assume these were not the only two occasions, so, so then the question becomes what made these occasions so unique? And even if we do assume that these are only such occasions, uh, what do we celebrate nowadays? Is it only the fact that we rescued, or is it something above and beyond that? To, uh, now, to uh, emphasize the point a bit more, 
I'll introduce for a moment the concept of Megillat Ha'anit. The Gemara tells us in a few places that we have Megillat Ha'anit. Megillat Ha'anit is a scroll of various days of observation which were observed during time by Yishayni. All kinds of days in which good things happened, uh, in which you cannot fast. It's Megillat Ta'anit because those are days in, in which it's forbidden to fast. Various uh, political, spiritual uh, victories uh, in some form or another over political, spiritual threats which emerged at the time. Now, Megillat uh, Ta'anit is a whole long list uh, of many, many such days. Which the Gemara tells us at the end in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, Daf Yudchet, and Masechet Tanit, in the same Daf, that all these days were eliminated at the time of the Churban. Once Baishani, once the Baish was destructed, and the Churban came, from now on we have nullified Megillat Tanit. Megillat Tanit no longer is no longer valid. The days have lost all meaning, and uh, many of those days we still have the list. Many of those days indeed are plain Vachadik uh, regular days nowadays and we have no they have no such meaning for us to put in the Gemara's phrase Batla Megillat Ta'anit was nullified why? the assumption presumably is is that after the Churban we turn the page and, and uh, we open a new chapter in history we turn the page we eliminated all of uh, previous two we, we closed the chapter on, on we closed the book in that chapter we open, we reset the clock. From now on, we're dealing with a new era in history. And therefore, we no longer observe those days of observance which belong to the previous period. And uh, they've lost their relevance now that we've transitioned from living in our land, in our country, with our political uh, and spiritual uh, climate to, uh, to Galut. To living under others, uh, to living in different, uh, with different challenges, <coughs> with different problems, etc. In the, now the Gemara adds that this is true with the exclusion of two days, Purim and Hanukkah. Purim and Hanukkah remain in effect even after the rest of the Megillah <coughs> was voided, and uh, even though Purim and Hanukkah were originally part of that Megillah. Now, I'm not going to the exact halachic uh, debates whether they remain in effect as part of the Megillah or as a separate, as a separate halacha. Either way, though, the, point of the, matter, the fact of the matter is, is that Purim and Hanukkah belong to a broader system of days of observance. All those days were then nullified and lost their relevance. Purim and Hanukkah are considered relevant to this very day. And uh, matter of fact, uh, the Rambam quotes in the footsteps of Chazal that Purim will remain relevant even in Moshe Mashiach because the memory of these days will never be erased from Jewish memory even after Mashiach will come and will turn a whole new page in history and in a sense everything will begin afresh. Nevertheless, Purim will remain in effect. And... Uh, I go back to the original question, why is this so? To put it differently, if we move to a new historical chapter and we begin to observe different days of delivery because there are different dangers and, and a different uh, culture in terms of our history, um, what makes Purim the day of relevance? <laughs> to answer this, we'll go back for a moment to Pesach, which is the prototype for all Jewish festivals in a sense. And... Uh, over there, uh, we have the Arba Lishant of Gula, the four uh, four stages of the or the four uh, the four Lishanot of Gula, in which it goes like this: I will take you out of Egypt. I will deliver you from the persecution. I'll redeem you. I will take you as choose you as my people, and I'll take you to Eretz Israel. Now, the point is, there are two separate ideas, or two separate promises, because Baruch was telling Moshe Rabbeinu over there. The first is, this danger, this persecution, this oppression. I will take you, I will take the people, and I will eliminate the suffering, the persecution, um, the political bondage, the slavery, and there will be a free people. Additionally, 
I will Yisrael. I will choose them to become my people. Now these are separate concepts. In theory, because Rock could have rescued them, but not chosen them. Could have rescued them out of pity, out of um, he could have rescued them because they were suffering, but not have chosen them necessarily. He could also have chosen them without having them suffer. For instance, on Sukkot we celebrate the fact that Kashmir chose us and he treats us as his people, even though it's not necessarily and the, the point of survival, it's not necessarily survival in the desert. It's simply the idea of that we and him are somehow together. Somehow the idea of together as being his people. And so the concepts are independent concepts. You can have one without the other. They do not necessarily have to go hand in hand. We were not chosen because we were suffering. And uh, we could have been chosen independent of suffering. We could have been rescued independent of the election. And so therefore, essentially, we are celebrating two separate uh, concepts, uh, two separate themes which run throughout Pesach. And if, if now is Erev Pesach and not Erev Tisha B'av, um, one can illustrate in great detail how these two things play out throughout the various observations of Pesach, be it the mitzvot and the different halachot, be it uh, be in the Haggadah. You can see throughout how different ideas uh, or, or different halachot, different actions express these two ideas. Just to give one example, sacrificing the Korban Pesach, the actual act of sacrifice, meaning slaughtering the animal and sprinkling its blood, is related more to the idea of Bechira, of Vilakachti, I chose you, of a covenant. The idea of eating the Korban Pesach has more to do with the fact that Baruch Hu delivered us and rescued us. And that's why they have a different time frame and uh, other halachot. And once more, one can multiply this uh, with many other such examples as well. And throughout Pesach night, we have to ask ourselves which, which act and which action there is expressing which idea. And uh, this brings us to the basic point. Chagim, was Yamim Tovim, first and foremost expressed the idea of a covenant between Am Yisrael and Kadosh Baruch Hu. The idea of a covenant between God and His people, put differently in the phrase of Chazal, it's Lifnei Hashem. Person comes, and our people, as a, either as individuals or as a nation, we present ourselves to Kadosh Baruch Hu. We come, and we are there to celebrate the covenant. To celebrate the fact that we belong to Him, that we appear in front of Him. It is not only thanking Him for the fact that He delivered us from this danger, from that danger. It is rather much, it's much more basic idea. It's the idea of having a relationship with Him. It's establishing a relationship, no matter how we will define the relationship at the moment, whether we use the metaphor of a king and his people, a master and servants, we use the metaphor husband-wife, parent-child, and Tanakh uses all these metaphors in different places. Uh, but wherever the metaphor is, the idea is that the Chagim express the relationship. And that's what makes them specifically Jewish holidays, because they express the relationship between Am Yisrael and the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And uh, therefore, you can have a Chag independent of the fact that we were rescued or delivered, you can, of course, have the opposite. But uh, the basic animating idea of the Chagim is Lifnei Hashem, is the expression of the relationship or the celebration of the covenant. And uh, having said that, let's now go back uh, to Purim. Purim and Hanukkah, what's unique about them is exactly this point. At both of the notes... God had made a covenant with Moshe Rabbeinu in Yitzhak Mitzrayim when we left Egypt, in Mamad Sinai, at Sinai. And, of course, this is what uh, the Gemara means when it says that Mamad Sinai is a form of a bri, of, excuse me, of Gerut. In other words, we were converted. We became his people. He chose us. He elected us. And uh, this covenant, more or less, held firm throughout the ups and downs of Tanakh, until the Chorban, until Besamikish was destroyed and B'nai Yisrael sent into exile, up to that point, the relationship had, had its ups and downs, but it remained a relationship. If you remember in the beginning of Sefer Shoftim, that's more or less what the Navi says over there. You'll sin, I'll make you suffer, I'll make, I'll make you pay the price, 
I will then send someone to deliver you. Things will be things will be fine. Once you once you violate the mitzvot again, you stop preserving them. So once more, I'll send the guy to come and sting you, or to come and uh, <coughs> and to cause suffering. And there's up and down, up and down. But the relationship more or less goes on the way Amos will say later on. Yadati is in the meaning of I chose you, I, I, uh, I designated you. Because I designated you as my people, therefore I care about you, and therefore I make you pay the price of your sins. For the same reason that you punish your child, but not your neighbor's child, if your child will throw garbage in the, in, in the street, you will rebuke him and you'll punish him. But if a stranger will do it, you won't. Because if he's a stranger, it's not your problem. It's not, you don't care about that. Um, unless, of course, you feel that all strangers are part of your people. And then you have a more inclusive sense of family. But uh, you care about those who are closest to you. And that's what Kajbaru says over there. Because you're my people, therefore I punish you. Now this held throughout all of Bait Rishon. Until, until the actual Churban. When the Churban came, the relationship was disrupted. One could say it may have been severed. If you, may, if you think about the first Pasuk in Sefer Echa, and the Megillat Echa we'll read uh, next week, uh, hopefully not, but uh, presumably we'll be reading it. Echa Yashravadad Ha'ir Abatiam Hayita Ke'almana. Look what happened to Jerusalem. It is now a widow. Why a widow? Because if the Tanakh describes B'nai Yisrael and the Kaddish Baruch husband and wife, so now she's a widow because she's lost her husband. Or to put it in the phrase of Yirmiyahu from what we read, what we read over Shabbat, this is um, the end of the parak, which was the last Shabbat of Torah. Leymor, if a person will divorce his wife, Yishalach in Tanakh means to divorce. She marries someone else, or to put it, Havaya in Tanakh means to marry. Will he return to her? If a woman leaves her husband and hooks up with someone else, can she return to him? So how dare you think that you're able to return to me? And of course, what we'll be reading later on in the summer, we'll do this Shevet and Achemta, we'll be reading Psukim which reverse it. Where there was no divorce. It's an illusion. I really care about you. The, really, the fact that you think there was a divorce is a mistake. Um, or we'll talk about the fact that, that we're at Kashbrahu's children you never, and you never forget a child. But when you look after the mode of a Churba, in other words, the Nevi'im had this very uh, tense relationship between presenting it as the relationship has been severed and is over. In other words, it's a divorce. Yishalach ishet ishto, and he'll never return to her. Or, Mapitom, I never divorced you, I never meant to divorce you, um, and you're my child, and... Uh, Will a, will a woman ever forget her child? Even if a woman will forget her child, I'll never forget you. In other words, the relationship remains in effect. However, this is far from evident to B'nai Israel because they've been listening for a long time to Yirmiyahu telling them these messages of the relationship is in danger. Because the entire relationship is in jeopardy. And moreover, it's not only what, they've been, what they're hearing, it's what they see. In other words, the Mikdash has been destroyed. There is no precedent. In nowadays, it's clear to us that you have Jewish existence in the Galut. We've been for 2,000 years in the Galut, and the relationship remains. It remains through Torah, it remains through Tefillah, it remains through the fact that we continue to hope for Israel, and so on and so forth. They're unaware of this. They know no other Jewish existence in sect except in the land of Israel. They, know, they went to Egypt when they became a people, strained out to Israel, and there they lived. It is unclear to them at all that there's such an idea 
of Jewish existence outside of Israel. And if they, have, and if they think it's so, all they have to do is look at the ten tribes, see what happened to them, how they disappeared and got lost in the mists of uh, history in Assyria, and uh, they're gone. So what, and uh, Yirmiyahu is aware of this. Yirmiyahu and Sunfarkimi threatens them, be careful, see what happened to the Aserat Shvatim. If you think that you will continue to sin and I'll, you, you remain my people, just contemplate what happened to the ten tribes. And um, Hosea, when he begins to threaten the Aserat Shvatim, that's his major battle, to explain to them that Galut is a possibility. Originally, they don't believe it's a possibility. They don't, they can't even imagine because Rahu actually expelled them. But once it happens and, and they disappear, so Yirmiyahu is saying, look what happened. You go, you leave, you disappear. And now that the Galut comes and they're taken away to Bavel and they're no longer in Israel, they have, they have no clue that you can really talk about Jewish survival in Chutz Laaretz. A, it's not clear to them whatsoever that the Kodesh Baruch Hu continues to maintain the relationship from his point of view. This is what Chazal said in famous Rishim that the Kenti Yechezkel, who was a Navi at the time of the Churban, and they said to him, Eved Shemecharo Rabo Klum Yeshto Alav. If you have a slave who is sold by the master, is there any relationship? It's gone. Once you sell him to somebody else, it's like a piece of property. You say you sell the slave, the relationship is no longer there. And if we talk about Kaddish Baruch being our master, and we have to serve him, and now he sold us, what it means is he severed the relationship. And we are no long, we no longer belong to him. He no longer cares about us. And that's what Yechezkel is trying to basically fight such an approach because the people really feel like that. As they've been hearing throughout however the Yisraeli Bayit that Yisrael is God's servants, that he's our master and now he sold us so it's all over. And that's from his point of view. From another point of view they're living in a society in an environment in which often religion is local because they've been influenced by Abu Dazarah not clear to them exactly. No, it's the idea of a monotheistic relationship is may not be necessarily clear to everyone. But once more, the basic point is the Khurban shows not only divine disapproval, it means divine disconnection. Because Rahu is disconnecting from us, and therefore he's letting us disappear to Bavel. That's one drama which is going on at the time of the Khurban. Because it's unprecedented. There's no, and the only precedent is, as I said before, a certain shvatim, and that is not such a happy precedent. And so, therefore, essentially, Bnei Israel, it's not self-evident that Kadosh Baruch Hu retains the relationship. Now, so this parsha said before Chazal attribute this battle to Yechezkel. Now they come to Persia, and in Persia, there's a change of scenery. Society now takes on a different view. Society in Persia is quite accepting of Am Yisrael. If you look at, this is partially from reading the Megillah, partially through the filter that Chazal presented of society in Shushan. Shushan, the way Chazal viewed and the way the Megillah seems to hint, uh, is a cosmopolitan society. It's accepting of various nationalities. It doesn't prefer necessarily one ethnic group over the other. Every time Achashverosh sends out a decree, he has multiculturalism. He doesn't limit it only to the official language of the dominant group. He's willing to give it in many languages. And, and Lashon often means in Tanakh. It's a metaphor for culture as well. He's willing to give it different languages, different uh, different cultural contexts. Uh, he's willing to invite everyone to his uh, to his partying. He's willing to have Jews sit in Shah Melech. He has concentrations of Jews in various cities. He's fine with that. He's willing to invite everyone to the partying. He's willing, you know, it's someone like Esther can join the competition and become a queen. 
In other words, at the end of the day, Achashverosh has is presiding over society which is both liberal, cosmopolitan, and hedonistic. To just to, to stick for a moment to the more liberal element, Chazal uh, say in the in the following passage, La Asod Tzkor Megillah Daf Yud Gimel, La Asod Kirtzon Ish Vaish. Excuse me, it's Daf Yud Bet. La Asod Ein Ein Ones. Everyone got their local ethnic food. He wasn't trying to force a certain culture, a particular culture over others. He was open to everyone. He wants to please everyone. He wants to please Mordechai. He wants to please Haman. In other words, he's willing to entertain everyone. He's willing to have Orthodox Jews come and be served kosher food. He's will and Yain Kitson Mordechai. Mordechai could come to Achashverosh's uh, feasts. He could get kosher food. Haman could come and get whatever he wanted. But you can have everyone together. He has no, there's no attempt to force a particular ideology or particular culture on any ethnic group. Everyone is welcome. It's a broad tent. And the problem is, of course, it's hedonistic. We'll get back to that later on, Belina. There, um, but uh, the fact of the matter is, is that it's an open cosmopolitan society in which you have representatives from 127 countries all coming together, all interacting, uh, all competing with each other, and mingling one with the other. And this is where, in a sense, uh, the drama of the Megillah begins. And so for Jewish, the relationship, the covenant, is called into question. Not only is it what Yechezkel is dealing with, the fact that Kashbrahu, his displeasure may result in severing the connection. The question also is, the new generation who's grew up in Shushan, what do they feel? The question is not only do we feel that God threw us out, but do we want to maintain the, the relationship? But differently, the threat of assimilation. For a generation growing up in Shushan, in a center, in a political, cultural center, this is the idea that Yiddishkeit, or Torah, may have been relevant in Canaan, when they entered Canaan from Egypt, amongst the pagans of Canaan, a backward country with not much culture. So over there, it may be... Torah was in advance. Torah was a much higher ethical and cultural level. But now they've arrived hundreds of years later in a new cosmopolitan society, which is very liberal. It's open to everyone. It's not clear to all of them how relevant A, Torah, and how relevant B, Jewish identity is. Liberalism and universalism always go together because you accept everyone, so differences, identity, stop being basic ideas and they become uh, something almost uh, peripheral. And therefore, uh, in this society, it's not clear to many of the Jews of the, of, of the new generation in which they grow up comfortable in Shushan, in which they feel at home. And as I said before, it's a society in which you're invited to the king's feast, in which a Jewish girl can become a princess. And she can, uh, she can climb the ladder. And Mordechai can sit B'Shar Melech, which is the political center of the of the country, and he can sit there and tell people he's a Jew. And uh, therefore, from, from their point of view, it is far from clear that they have to retain their identity. In other words, you can assimilate, you respect it as a human being, you respect it as a person, and uh, the dilemma of maintaining Jewish identity in such a society in light of the previous point, in particular, becomes acute. In other words, on the one hand, this idea of Baruch Hu threw us out of Eretz Yisrael, he doesn't want us anymore, he forced us to leave Eretz Yisrael, he destroyed the Mikdash, if I come and say, I'll dwell amongst you in the Mikdash, there's no more Mikdash, means he's gone, the way, he, the way Cheskel describes, how the Shekhinah ascends back to the heavens, he's no longer amongst us, he severed the connection, he sold us down the river, and on the other hand, 
growing up in a cosmopolitan, open, liberal society, calls into question your motivation, your commitment. There's a tremendous crisis in which the entire covenant is called into question. Parenthetically, I remarked that in Hanukkah is a similar story, just there it's not political, it's not more society, it's more culture. In other words, there it's Torah versus uh, sophisticated, developed culture, it's, um, it, it's, it's Greek philosophy, it's Greek culture, it's uh, Greek literature, um, and, but that's, a, that's the same idea just on the cultural level, not on the historical, societal level, and, but they're more or less analogous. Now, to get back to Shushan, in this regard, there's a huge difference between, if you want, the older generation and the younger generation. The generation which remembers the old country, the generation which came from the Churban, which experienced the Churban, and the younger generation which is growing up as native members of Shushan. And it's into this uh, environment uh, that, that we step into. Now, Chazal say, why, why was Am Yisrael in that generation? Why was the, why the Kajbar who wanted to destroy them? Why did Haman, why was Haman almost able to make a holocaust? So they partook of Achashverosh's feast. Now, I said before, first of all, it's, it's self evident that Kajbarhu doesn't want to destroy people just because they ate some non kosher food. But particularly, Chazal tells us, and I'll, I'll let the Midrash share, because I think the, the Midrash is a very sensitive reading of the Psukim, the food was kosher. They were getting kosher food. The problem is not even the kashrus, and it's even if it was the kashrus, that wouldn't have been the reason to destroy them. The point is, rather, when they partake of Achashverosh's feast, they basically, in terms of their identity, they see themselves as Persians. They see themselves as belonging to Persian society, as members of that society. They're no longer, they're assimilating. Whether you assimilate with kosher food or non-kosher food is irrelevant. What's relevant is the fact that you are assimilating, your identity is no longer a Jewish identity, it becomes the local identity of the host culture. Now, into this vacuum, or into this setting, we meet Mordechai and Esther. And uh, now go to the Megillah in um, Perak Bet. When the Megillah presents to us the first time we meet Mordechai and Esther, we haven't met them until now. We've only seen Achashverosh and the society and Vashti. Um, and now we come across Mordechai and Esther. It's Perik Bepasukei, famous Psukim. Ish Yehudi Ayabesh Shushan Abira, Ushmo Mordechai Ben Yair Ben Shiv Ben Kish Ish Yemini, Shuglam Yerushalayim, Imagola Shuglatayim Yuchanan Melech Yehuda, Shuglam Yuchanan Tzar Melech Bavel. So we meet a Jewish person, Ish Yehudi, that his Jewishness screams out, in Jushan Habira, his name is Mordechai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, from the tribe of Binyamin, who was exiled from Yushalayim with the entire Golav Yechonyam, and uh, etc. We have a whole Megillah of his Yichus. What, where, to put it simply, Mordechai symbolizes the idea of tradition. He has roots, very deep roots. Where are Mordechai's roots? In Yerushalayim. He's an Ish Yehudi. He proudly identifies as an Ish Yehudi. He's a, he's a Jew. And he's a such. He has a kapote, he has a strimal. He looks the role, he plays the part. He's he's simply a he sticks out as a Jew. Bishushan Habira. So he's in Shushan Habira, he's in the center of Persia. He's in the capital city. He's in the modern uh, cosmopolitan city, and he goes about behaving like a Jew. And his roots are deep. Ben Yehushma Mordechai, Ben Yair, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, Ishimini. So he goes back four generations. We know exactly his lineage. And we know he comes from Yushalayim. As opposed to this, this Esther, she's rootless. Ein la'avva'em. She has no roots. She has no tradition. She's there, she's floating without an avva'em. It's not only a biographical detail. It's rather, it's a literary detail, which is crucial. She has no firm roots. 
and of course she hasn't come from Yerushalayim. She's uh, younger. Meaning, she has no roots, and Mordechai is trying to provide her with the heritage. She becomes his daughter. It's not only a question once more that he is uh, simply doing a mitzvah of Gilus Chesed. It's trying to tell us from a literary perspective that he is trying to instill in her the values that he has with him. She represents the rootless young generation. Well, he represents the generation of tradition whose roots go back. He has the continuity from Yushalayim. He connects the dots between Yushalayim and Shushan. But she exists only in Shushan. And now, uh, and now what happens? She's taken this beauty contest. And she's taken, etc. So we have her like this. We have her in a sense, on the one in a figure who represents before tradition. He has no doubts about the covenant. He doesn't think that it was nullified. In his mind, there's no, it's not an issue. Simulation is not an option. He's an issue who And he has no doubt because Rochum intends the relationship. He knows his Yeshayahu. And he's, it's quite clear to him that because Rochum intends the relationship with Am Yisrael. On the other hand, there he has Esther. And uh, she's struggling with this issue. There she goes, becomes, she climbs the ladder of success with, within Persian society. She becomes a queen. She becomes a princess. She's, um, so it says that she was taken. It's not too clear from the Megillah how much was coercion or how much, uh, or how much uh, she was also uh, willing to present herself. Uh, at the end of the day, it says Vatilakach, but uh, we can presume that there were probably thousands, if not uh, hundreds of thousands of candidates and uh, not clear that necessarily they had to coerce her. It's, 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 it's hard to say. Uh, this is quite an encouragement. Once he goes, he tells her how to, you know, he instructs her how to behave. This is what Tilakach is there. One can view that as being encouraged, or, excuse me, as, as being taken. I, I tend to assume that in some form or another, consciously, subconsciously, she was, uh, she saw it as a, as a success, a smoothing up the ladder. But at any rate, um, so before, there she is with no roots. And we'll get back to this in a moment. Uh, and there are two figures. Now, what's Mordechai's response? Okay, now, excuse me. Now, she goes, okay, and she's taken. Mordechai tells her to conceal her Jewishness. So, on the one hand, this reinforces the point I said before. That, um, in theory, she could, she could have revealed it and she got away with it. In other words, if it was a situation in which being Jewish would have disqualified her, the anti-Semitism was so palpable so that it would have obviously uh, threatened her, he wouldn't have to tell her. It would have been self-evident without being told. He's telling her either because he wants, he's aware that nevertheless their status of survival is precarious and he doesn't want to waste uh, this information. Could be because there's some kind of latent anti-Semitism which if not above board may be there and he thinks it's better for her not to be revealed as a Jew. But at any rate, uh, the option seems to be that uh, she could have revealed it. It wasn't self-evident to her that she doesn't have to reveal it. Either, so before, either because society is quite open and she's willing to go along, either because it's not too clear to her the whole tension of Jewish identity. Now, uh, Haman comes along. And uh, Mordechai... Um, okay, and then we begin the whole story with Haman. And I'm the, it's clear from the episode that there is a certain amount of anti-Semitism. It's not... You know, it's, uh, it's not only that Hashverosh is willing to sell people for money, there also seems to be an excellent anti-Semitism within society, which is still there. At any rate, what's more important is, Peregimu Pasuk Dalid, V'yikom Ram Eilav Yom Vayom, V'lo Shama Lehem, you know, it's Mordechai disregarded their instructions of Haman's advisors, they told Haman to see whether Mordechai can actually persist. Mordechai proclaims his Jewishness. He tells them I'm a Jew. Why won't he bow down to, to Haman? He's willing to say it in, in, in their face. He's willing to proclaim his Jewish allegiance, his Jewish identity. I would add also that Chazal at times take the take the phrase Higid to assume that it's uh, it's speech which is which is 
which is stark and powerful. It's not uh, it's not appeasing speech. It's uh, it's a, it's a speech with a certain amount of, uh, of confidence and uh, this is the way it is. And like it or not, this is the way this is why I am. This is the way it is. Jumak kashim kigidim. No, it's there. They're strong and not. Uh, I'm not trying to appease anyone. <laughs> now. Um, Okay, now, because time is a bit short, let's, let's skip a bit forth. Um, after the decree is sent out and the uh, Jewish survival is threatened, uh, etc. Now, Mordechai um, goes to Esther and uh, he tells her to go in front of Achashverosh. And here everything comes to a head. At this point... Um, No, so here, just for a moment, Mordechai, quit Chazal, there's two things. First of all, he goes and he collects all of the school children, the Tino culture, Beit Rabban, takes all the kids from the Cheder, and he utilizes them for Torah, for Tefillah. In other words, to put it differently, he reinforces the traditional element. Secondly, he goes to Esther, and wants to use her to rescue the Jews. And there's a, there's, a, there's a dual strategy. Mordechai knows deep down, in some form or another, Jewish survival is ensured. Kaddish Baruch who guaranteed it to us. Kilot tishakach mipizaro. Jewish survival will be forever. Kaddish Baruch who offered Moshe Rabbeinu after the Egel to destroy all the Jews. Moshe Rabbeinu said, no thank you. It's not an option. He promised Avrits of Yaakov the Jewish survival will be forever. So Mordechai knows, in some form or another, that there will be Jewish survival. And the fact of the matter, he's right. However, the question is, with who and how? In other words, let's assume for the moment that Esther would have said no. As Mordechai says, it can be done through other vehicles. But then, would have survived only the traditional element. Particularly, may I show him a borough park would have survived anyways. The question is, the vast majority of the Jews, those who Esther represents, what would happen to them? So Mordechai takes Tzachar Shemesh Rabban. They're his insurance policy. They're the most committed. So aside from the fact that Chazal want, and they're taking the model from Yaakov Avinu, that you don't only do political maneuvering, but you also do tefillah. Besides all that, Mordechai knows he has to first go and reinforce the traditional committed element. And that's act number one. So he reinforces that element. But that element will only guarantee Jewish survival for the most committed and the most traditional. The real drama here is the vast majority of the Jews are somewhere in between. Those who have a certain amount of identity, but only a certain amount. What will happen to them? And here it's Esther who represents this vast group. Esther is the one who doesn't exactly know what to do, she's in a dilemma between <coughs> proclaiming her Jewishness and paying the price of opposing Haman, if necessary, or not. And when Mordechai, and, when, and with the whole exchange between Mordechai and Esther and Hatach, this is what it's all about. The issue there is not political. The issue is Esther's identity. I forgot to mention before, but I should have, that her dual identity is uh, expressed also in the fact she has two names. She has two names, which means a dual identity. And that's the question. Is she Hadassah or is she Esther? Will she be able to have a dual identity? Or will she have to choose? And when, when it, and at this point in the narrative, it comes down to having to choose between one of the two identities. Or at least it may come down to that. And now Mordechai says to her, Go to Achashverosh and say that Haman is all the Jews. What does she say to him? So she says the following. Everybody knows Yodim Asher Kol Ish V'Isha Shevor HaMelech Everybody knows these are the rules. This is how Persia functions. This is how Shushan works. These are the rules. You have to play by the rules, the local custom and the local rules. Um, 
What she says to him is, sorry. This is the way Persia works. I can't violate the norms and customs of Shushan. In other words, it's not a question, a legal question. Is it a good idea or a bad idea? It's a much deeper thing. Are you committed to Mordechai? Remember the Sanhedrin? The Ishihudi? Or are you committed to call of Deha Melech Melech? That's real drama here. What will be her lodestar? To who will she eventually, who will be the one who will able to dictate to her what does she do? Will it be Ishihudi? Will it be call of Deha Melech Melech? Will it be local custom? Or will it be Mordechai who represents Jewish tradition? At this point, this dilemma, this is the crux of the Megillah. Will she follow Mordechai or call of the Amelech? And Vayera Mordechai Lashiv Elaster, he goes to Don't fool yourself that by joining Persian culture you'll be able to save yourself. Now, this is a message on the one level political that even assimilated Jews, eventually anti Semitism will catch up with them. But another level, it's cultural and religious. Don't fool yourself that you can stay, you can remain that in such a time which you have to choose. You know, it's up till now you can be a Hadassah and a stair. You could be Gam Hadassah, Gam Esther. Hadassah, he is there. At this point, it's come to a head. You have to choose. And don't fool yourself. You can stay with HaMelech and remain Hadassah, he is there. Either you will be Hadassah, you'll be Esther. If you don't, proudly proclaim your allegiance to tradition, to Jewish identity, not only will you maybe destroy physically, but you lose your spiritual identity, you lose your national identity. Ve'at u'beit avich tovedu. Beit avich means your identity. You know, it's beit avich, she's, she's an orphan. Ein la'ava ein. It doesn't mean to beit avich tovedu. It doesn't mean she'll be the last in the line. It means the whole identity will be disappeared. They will be assimilated and lost. And that's his point. The question here is, is your ascendancy to the Malchut, is that a vehicle to serve Jewish identity, Jewish survival, or is it a personal achievement? And when you have to choose here between, means choose. Is your Jewish identity your primary identity? And the fact that you happen to be a VIP in Persia only secondary or vice versa. This is your historical role. Will you choose to reaffirm and reestablish the covenant in Shushan? In Galut, will you join me in saying there's a direct line between Yushalayim and Shushan and then eventually back? Or will you come and say, call of Deha Melech, Melech? This is the dilemma. The dilemma doesn't exist in Mordechai's soul. On the one hand, that's Mordechai's great achievement, or that's his great power. On the other hand, that's Mordechai's great disadvantage also. Mordechai can't convince the young generation. He can't win over all the people who are like Esther, who are ruthless. The vast majority of the people who were born in Shushan and go to Hazrej's feasts and live there, and we have a lot of Jews in Shushan. If you later on the Megillah, we talk about how Yudim Hashem Shushan it's a significant contingent and they're living in Shushan because they want to partake of political, cultural, economic life of Shushan. All these people, they don't speak Mordechai's language. Mordechai can't relate to them because his identity is so clear. He's, he's like the old Jew from the Alter Haim who can't influence the young generation. He can, for himself, live his Jewish life, but he cannot impact the new generation of the Esthers of the world. And as such, as I said before, you can assure survival for a small group. But the real drama is Esther. So, and when Esther decides, and you can hear, you can cut the tension with a knife at this point. When he says, choose, at this point, Esther has, this is, this is the, the turning point of the Megillah. The point in which she reaffirms her identity. At that moment, she says, she can do that. When she's, uh, she's the most successful, she's risen the highest in the ladder of power, she's the one who everyone's so impressed by her achievements. She actually is in the palace. 
she could say because she has the charisma and the achievement and she is the same wavelength as the whole new generation, then when she says, gather and assemble them all together, they'll come. Not to Mordechai. He can be He can be Kones. He can only assemble those who are like him. And those are not the vast majority. Rather, it's Esther who can do that. And the moment says, Lech Knosset Kol Yudim, and so on and so forth, this essentially is the turning point of the Megillah. The turning point spiritually. Politically, not yet. There'll be another turning point politically. I would also add, and I don't have time for this today, that there's another drama going here, which is not Mordechai and Esther, it's rather Mordechai and Achashverosh. Achashverosh, there's, there's another thread running through the Megillah, which is the thread of values and... Um, and the turning point of that will be in Perek Vav, when Achashverosh wakes up to realize that his hedonistic, uh, materialistic society is basically bankrupt, and things are quite rotten, and uh, he needs more high value system. That will be a value system of loyalty and responsibility. That will be the second turning point. But the turning point in terms of Jewish identity is in these psuki. As a matter of fact, the Gemara says in the, the Gemara's discussion, what portions of the Megillah you have to read in order to fulfill the mitzvah, to be Yotzei Dechova. So there's, there are various opinions. Start from Perek Vav. There's one opinion from Perek Gimel. There's another opinion from Perek Bet. And there's a fourth opinion from Perek Aleph. The Kayemet called Tokif, to fulfill the story, the authority of the Megillah. So one opinion says, Tokfo Shalachashverosh. The others know it's it's, a, it's really the episode of Achashverosh. The other one says, Tokfoshel Nes. It's the episode of the physical delivery. And the third opinion says, Tokfoshel Mordechai Ve'ester. You have to start from Ishihudi. If the political drama is what you care about, you have to start really, you, know, you can say the whole Megillah. You can say the political drama we care we have to start from Haman's ascendancy. Acharadrim Ha'ela. Begin Paragimo. The opinion which says to start from Paragbet, from Ishihudi, What's really saying is the essential drama of the Megillah is not the political one, it's rather the spiritual one, the one of identity. And therefore, it's really the story of the transformation of Mordechai and Esther. Now, Mordechai, um, now what happens is a fascinating thing. After Esther makes her decision, and it's the only re- the only way she makes the decision is because of Mordechai. To put it differently, Mordechai plays a crucial role. Without him, Esther never would have decided to go to Achashverosh. In other words, without his persistence and without his authority, she never, and without his representing the past and the identity, she never ever would have had the courage or the conviction to go to Achashverosh against local custom, against Persian, Persian culture, she would have been won over by call of Everybody does things this way. It's only, you know, without Mordechai, nothing would have ever happened. He never raised her. She wouldn't have had the Jewish identity. It's only the fact that he raised her the way he raised her. It's only the fact that he impressed upon her at that moment that she has no other choice. So without Mordechai, Esther is lost. I said before, without Esther, Mordechai can accomplish very little. He can only save a fraction of Am Yisrael. Now that they've combined forces, and she says, Lech Knosset Kol HaYehudim, because she can indeed do that, Mordechai is also transformed. In other words, Mordechai now becomes much more politically engaged, much more politically active. Up to this point, and there's a question here, how much you, how much you think that Shah HaMelech means he's a politician or a leader before, how much you see him simply in the fringes? Uh, what certainly is clear is that Mordechai becomes a may, much more actively involved in political life after Esther does it. it was Mordechai's whole mode of action of Ishihudi, Ki Gidon Shehuyudi, even if he values political life, but he's an outsider. He's in the fringes of society. He acts like an outsider. He doesn't. So on the one hand, he, he maintains his autonomy. He's the only one who doesn't bow down to Haman. On the other, he's the only one who's not impressed by Haman's uh, power and prestige. But on the other hand, uh, he's in the outer circle. No one, and he can't even get a message across to Achashverosh to save his life. He needs Esther to be the courier. He can't deliver anything 
he can't enter the inner circle. He can't enter work from within. From within, the moment Esther does that, so then Mordechai is able to work from within. And the moment that Esther goes to Achashverosh and she's able to convince Achashverosh, so then, um, so then Mordechai becomes a political figure. It begins with the story of the, of the horse and the Big Day Malchut. And that point already, what does Achishverosh say? Give Mordechai political... What, what did Haman want? He wanted political recognition of his supreme position. Bring a regal horse, bring me princely garments, and so on and so forth. And all this is now... Put on Mordechai. So Mordechai now becomes a, politi- becomes a political figure. And of course, then Achishverosh says, Beit Haman, Mordechai. Beit Haman doesn't mean Haman's um, villa. It means Haman's administration. It means his bureaucratic center. It's the place, it's his center of power. It's where his accomplices are working. It's He's giving him Haman's admiralty. He's not giving him his private home. Beit Haman, meaning Haman's center of power. And Mordechai takes that. Of course, later on, he be, he remains politically active to the point the conclusion of the Megillah is Ufashat Gdulat Mordechai Mordechai's political elevation by Achashverosh They become he's politically relevant not only for Jews it's only an inner Jewish story about Jewish identity Mordechai now becomes relevant from a Dayan Paras as well. Um, I said before, that's a whole part of a whole different, uh, that's part of the second thread which runs to Megillah. For our point here, Mordechai has no, he's ineffective and he has no influence when he's the issue D without Esther. It was the old uh, traditional Jew and the fringe of society cannot work from within. But on the other hand, he's crucial to assure, you know, it's as a fixed point of reference, to assure tradition, to assure identity. Esther can have, introduce him and bring him into the fold to be effective. Now, to return to, um, to what I said before, this essentially is the reason that Purim is a Chag. Purim is a Chag because the covenant was called into question. Now it's reestablished because no, it's, it's, no, it's, now at this point we've affirmed that outside Israel, without Beit Hamikdash, in Galut, in an open liberal society, Jewish Jewish identity, Jewish tradition, and the relation between Kadosh Baruch and Israel remains in effect. And this is now this is the essential point of Purim. This, of course, is what Chazal tell us when they talk about Kimu Kiblu. What does Kimu Kiblu mean? So Chazal notes. They accepted, uh, they they reaffirmed, and they accepted uh, what was begun before. So Chazal said this means they reaffirmed the covenant of Har Sinai, right? It was reaffirmed in time of Achashverosh. And the Chazal tell us in, in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, the moment Har Sinai was, so to speak, was in Sinai itself, it was by coercion. Now, it doesn't mean with a gunpoint necessarily. I mean, it's described figuratively like that. What it really means is, what choice does I mean? There are no other options. They're alone in the desert. So obviously, in the desert, when you're alone, you have Jewish identity. If Jewish identity means Torah, so Torah is thrust upon you. There aren't, there aren't options of assimilating. You're there you are. It's you, and the, it's you and the Torah. This is it. This is your identity. When you go into Canaan, so there's no big deal. You have these pagan, uh, primitive uh, tribes. So there's no real, uh, there's no real option for Sinai either. Now you come to cosmopolitan society and you reaffirm. So this, this already means that the covenant is eternal. No matter where you are, it's independent of place and historical circumstance. And this is the idea of Hadur Kiblua Bimechashverosh. They reaffirm Taimechashverosh was originally done because now they reaffirmed it with other options and greater choices. Nevertheless, they reaffirmed. This is the idea that Purim really is the reestablishing the covenant. Sifor Hanukkah is the same thing in terms of culture. Now, um, this also comes in the second point. The Megillah says to us, it's Perek Tepasuk Chaf Zayin, 
Kimu v'kibu ayudim alihem v'alzaram. They accept it upon themselves. Alzaram, no matter how circumstances will change, no matter what will happen in any place or any time, it will never change. Because once you've said it's in, it's in, in Shushan as well as Yerushalayim, saying is, history can change many ways. We have no way of foreseeing history later on. We end up in Morocco, we end up in Taiman, we end up in Ashkenaz or in, uh, or in Hungary. But nevertheless, we know that in all circumstances, this will always remain a, a fixed uh, covenant. Okay, to observe these two days. These days, Nizkarim Vinasim, they're observed and they're remembered. Now, uh, without getting here into a long halachic discussion, I'll try to make the following point quickly. There's a, a very interesting passage in the Ran in Masechet Megillah, Ran is 15th century Spain, uh, he, uh, 14th century, I think, uh, he says the following that um, we, we have, a, at least if you live in Israel, once every 10, 15 years, you have Puri Meshulash. You have a triple Puri. Now what happens in Puri Meshulash? Puri Meshulash, the way we do it nowadays at least, you read the Megillah on Friday, and you have your Seuda on Sunday, which is a very strange way of doing things. Uh, why separate the Seuda from uh, the Megillah? And it also creates halakhic problems because the Gemara tells us Purim can never be postponed. Purim has to, you can move Purim, you can make it earlier. That you can do Purim on the 11th of Adar, the 12th of Adar, the 13th of Adar. You can't do it on the 16th. 16th is too late. Uh, however, uh, but on, on Purim Shulash, that's what we do. On the 16th of Adar, we make the Suda. So the Rans, what's going on over here? It's, it's against, uh, it's against the, the Gemara. So the Ran says the following. You have to differentiate between Nizkarim and Naasim. So basically, Purim has two ideas to it. There's the idea of Nizkarim and there's the idea of Naasim. And then he adds the following. Naasim, excuse me, Nizkarim cannot be postponed. But Naasim can be postponed. What does it mean, Nizkarim and Naasim? I think it's very simple. It means the following thing. The idea of naasi means laasot suuda vaasot oto yo mishteve simcha. Laasot means to feast, to make. And this kind, you mean naasi means making the days of festivity. That celebrates the fact that we survived physically. That celebrates the fact that Kadosh Baruch Hu delivered us from the danger. That is naasi. That the Rambam says you can you can postpone. Nizkarim, you cannot. What does Nizkarim mean? Nizkarim means Zocher Habrit. The concept of, uh, of Zikaron always goes together with the, with the Brit, with the covenant. Because the idea of a covenant is something which is forever. It's, what's, what does a covenant mean, essentially? It means it's not the moment in the present. The present, I don't need the covenant because I feel like that at the moment. It's rather I say, I will take my feelings at, and my commitments at the moment and I will fix them in stone forever. In other words, at the moment, what I feel at the moment will be binding throughout time, into the future. So that's why you, Zuchar Brit, at a later stage, you remember what you felt before. And Kashbaru, of course, it's metaphorically, but the point is, is that Zuchar Brit means that, the, that you can merge, that the past is relevant to the future. So here, what he's really saying is a, is a simple point. That we are observing on the Purim two separate, really two separate observations. One is Nizkarim, that's the breed. That you don't postpone because the whole essence of the, uh, the whole essence is Purim was brought about because of the breed. That's what caused it. You can't wait till later on. That has to be done originally. So in Pesach, so before the breed really is done by the Korban Pesach, which is an Erev Pesach, really. On the other hand, Naasim, to celebrate the fact that you were rescued, can only be done ex post facto. Before you're delivered, before you're rescued, you can't, the same way Lahavdil, the Midrashin, the Midrashin, the beginning of Eicha says, you don't mourn until a person actually dies. Even if someone is gravely ill, you don't, you don't. You only, you wait till the actual event. So, you, you only mourn after the event, you only celebrate after the event. Vani, 
Asher Hashem ki gamal alai, meaning I will praise God after it happened. Ki meaning kasher gamal alai. And um, so therefore, you have here these two separate observations. Normally they go hand in hand. On Purim Shulash, we separate them. Now, we have the for another 90 seconds. Um, the same thing happens when you have two, two others. When you have a Purim Katan and Purim Gadol. Once or without getting here into all the discussions of what happens in Purim Katan, our minak at the moment, in which Purim Katan is something but not much, is exactly the same point. We, it means the following. On the date, the actual date of observance is really, is really other Aleph. It says, Chodesh Temasar Chodesh Adar. Right, the 12th month, not the 13th. We celebrate the fact that we were rescued physically from physical destruction on Purim Katan. And that's why you make a Suda, and that's why you can't fast, which is really Megillah Tanit in a sense. In, um, with the reason we postponed the real Purim until the 13th month, we want to be close to Pesach. What does that mean? The covenant. Pesach is the, the idea of covenant. We want the covenant of Shushan to be associated with So therefore we celebrate Purim, the delivery, the physical the, the delivery on Adar Aleph, but the real, the essence, the kernel of Purim is really in Adar Beit, because that's a covenant. Now, just to conclude, um, I begin with the question, why we call Megillus Esther and not Megillus Mordechai Esther? So the answer, of course, the reaffirming the covenant is Esther's drama. By Mordechai was never in doubt. The real drama is the fact that Esther underwent this transformation. Now, I begin by saying, I can answer in a minute, which is, this is what happens in the final pasuk. If you remember, when we first meet Esther, well, how do we meet her? She has no parents. How do we see her at the end? All of a sudden she has a father. Meaning, she has regained her identity. She now has her identity as being the son of Avichayil. And this, and with this I conclude, this is what Chazal tells us, Esther said to them, register me as a Yom Tov. I belong to me in the registry of Yom Tov, or, or, or as part of Tanakh. So what did they tell her? It's an old story. This is written in the Torah, and in the, why? Because they thought of Amalek. And they say Amalek is written in the Torah, Amalek is written in the Nevim, Amalek is written in the Ketuvim. We don't need another story. It's an old story. You're just recycling the basic problem of Jewish history, anti-Semitism. So she says, to, so there's a whole debate over there. The debate is a very simple thing. They view it as another episode in the cycle of anti-Semitism. So I tell you, it's, it's, it's an old story, nothing new. And she says to me, you don't begin to understand me. That's not the real drama. The real drama of the Megillah is my transformation. That's a brand new story. The story of Amalek, you're right, that's an old story. We know that from Shmuel, we know that from Moshe Rabbeinu, from Yeshua. Nothing new about, about going trying to kill Jews. About Jews reaffirming their identity in a foreign land after Churban. That's a whole new story. That has never written before. Therefore, Kedrin Lederot. And they accepted her because she spoke as a transformed person.